Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey, Catherine. Hey. What's up? So... Quick update to yesterday. I saw that yesterday Fauci said that it is theoretically possible that we could have hundreds of millions of vaccine doses by January. It's it's very easy to say theoretically possible. I I don't think he's off base there because he's saying, you know, we'll have these sequences of the virus. We will have injected them into people. (laughs) We will have tested those people. And if they all look perfect and healthy without complications and we have all of the private partnerships with companies that will produce this then yes i just don't i'm curious why i get the public's hope up with something like that right now yeah i mean yesterday we were saying 18 months is probably unrealistic yeah um but that's been kind of a theme right we keep hearing these you know, remember we talked about we we're supposed to have a website from Google that would tell us right, exactly right. where to go to get tested at drive-through mm-hmm. testing clinics. The administration has been driving the news cycle by making claims about the future and what it plans to do. Right. And uh, I'm losing <laughs> losing faith, although, yeah, I'm hopeful. Yeah. Sure. It's not theoretically impossible, no. Well, You can caveat all you want. I'm going to say I would be shocked if January happens. So I'm not changing my feelings about it. Um, Don't change your feelings for anything. No. My feelings are valid. Your feelings are yours. Feelings, not facts. Right? Mm. I think that's what they say. Um, Okay. So today we're actually, we got a question from a listener that uh, is something that's been floating around a lot and I'm actually quite curious about as well. Um, Ted writes... In recent weeks, there have been a lot of stories about COVID-19 that look at HIV as a kind of older sister narrative. For the most part, I've hated these stories because they treat HIV like a past plague that only impacted white urban middle class gay men, but alas, that is for another day. Um, What I have not encountered, and what I think would be an amazing social distance episode, is a mainstream look at the criminalization around COVID-19 and how that relates and is informed by HIV criminalization. So... I mean, the the basic question is, there is this sort of desire to compare these two viruses and their effects on society. Certainly, there have been many, many stories like, what can we learn from HIV? It seems like there are certainly some connections, and then some are sort of stretches at trying to make these things similar, when in fact, it's a pretty different experience and, a, and obviously a really different disease. So we felt like we needed an expert for this one. Yeah, you know, this was... The worst of HIV was before my time and yours. But everyone I speak to who was in medicine at that time, you know, that was absolutely defined the every day of their lives. And I, I guess, you know, much of the rest of society, too. That's why I think there are analogies, even though the, like the, the mechanism of the virus and the disease it causes are very different. The social impact we haven't seen anything since hiv that's comparable to what we see now even though in many ways it's not at all comparable right yeah so you suggested someone we could we could talk to yeah greg gonzalez he is an epidemiologist at yale who was an activist with act up during 
the AIDS crisis in the 80s and now has been working on social justice and, and equity issues around COVID-19. Great. Seems like we should toss this question to him. Hey, Greg. Hey, James. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? Good, good. Um, it's nice to meet you, Greg. Oh, nice to meet you, too. Yeah, thank you for talking with us today. Oh, no problem. Greg, could you just introduce yourself to our, to our listeners? My name is Greg Gonzalez. I'm an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. I'm curious how you got interested in epidemiology and infectious diseases. I sort of didn't get interested in it in any sort of initial vocational way. I was in college in the 80s studying Russian language and literature and American and English literature and dropped out of college. You know, What's your favorite book, by the way? I need some good reading recommendations. Feels like a Russian novel could be good right now. Well, Middlemarch, George Eliot, totally most favorite book ever. You know, there's a Russian novel called Petersburg. Mm -hmm. It's about this political assassination and you're following the bomb across the city of St. Petersburg. Mm. You know, it's an experimental novel from the, I can't remember, 1913, 1914, I can't remember. Great. We'll check it out. Okay, so sorry to interrupt. So you were studying... Uh... Literature. I was like a comp lit, like, I was like a comp lit major and um, dropped out, like bumming around waiting tables. And I was a young gay man, it was the first decade of the AIDS epidemic. And I met somebody who was positive and it became sort of a life or death question about like, you know, how are we going to keep him alive, keep him healthy? How am I going to keep myself safe? And, you know, there was no internet, you know, there's no way to find out information. Right. You know, that is fascinating. Can you imagine? Tell me more about what that was like. Well, you know, what we're going to do, like there is no place to turn. And I can't remember where I saw it, but I found a notice from a meeting of a group called ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power in Boston, and went to it and realized there were all these people there who were doing the same exact thing, looking for information and sharing information, largely not medical people. You know, within a few months, I found myself sneaking into medical libraries. And, you know, we bought like a giant immunology textbook that we all read together. Like we used to call it Science Club, but, you know, these were people who were artists and writers and 20-something waiters and everything else. Um, trying to understand like T cells and B cells. And so it wasn't like I chose it as a profession. I sort of fell into it sort of in a mode of self-preservation for people I knew. Shortly after sort of joining ACT UP, there was a group of us broke off and formed a group called the Treatment Action Group. And the first thing we did was do a review of all of NIH's AIDS research spending. And we ended up getting Senator Kennedy and, Senator, and Representative Waxman to reorganize the way the National Institutes of Health does AIDS research got them to appoint a new director of the Office of AIDS Research. This was a big battle with Tony Fauci, by the way, because Tony was... I was going to ask. The bill we proposed with Kennedy and Waxman strengthened the office and put somebody else in charge. And so he was really pissed. And so I worked with TAG till around 2000 and then went to another group in New York City called Gay Men's Health Crisis, where I did, did a lot of work sort of internationally. And then one day saw an ad for this undergraduate program at Yale, and I applied and came back to finish a degree here. That was a biology degree. There was no more Russian literature. <laughs> so with all of this perspective in, in, in your head, what were your first thoughts when these stories of the new coronavirus of COVID-19 started popping up in January? So in a weird way, like my education spoiled me a little bit um, because, you know, I stayed to get my PhD here and, you know, 
I was thinking more like, okay, there's not a lot of data yet. Don't panic. I mean, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's like nobody expects, you know, a worldwide pandemic. And I think what's interesting is that a lot of the old AIDS activists that, I was, that I've been talking about started um, rising up. You know, there's a COVID-19 working group in New York City, which, you know, has a lot of the activists who were involved in the early age response, also a lot of the old physicians and scientists from that time too. It's interesting that this happened during Ebola in 2014-15-2 around the healthcare worker quarantines in the U.S. Yeah. It was the AIDS activists who sort of um, were protesting outside of Bellevue on behalf of the doctors who were being quarantined. Right. I remember at that at that point, you, you were worried about the, from a sort of human rights perspective, the, the government shouldn't be forcing people into quarantine. Um, yeah, it was very different. Yeah. Well, yeah, mostly because we didn't have an Ebola epidemic in the United States. Right. It is weird now in the context of COVID-19 to be thinking about testing, uh, contact tracing and isolation and being much more sort of, yeah, we got to do this um, because I've never been in a situation where, where quarantine made sense. Even during the AIDS epidemic, it didn't make sense. And w- with the Ebola quarantines, there were, if I recall correctly, there were like guards outside of people's houses or this well, was they, forced they had, enforced. People were very spooked by this oh in a God. way that they're in a way that they're not now with a with a vi- real virus in their midst there's much more sort of paranoid um fear-mongering in new haven back around ebola when there is no ebola you know to be found within you know six thousand miles why do you think that is i mean to be honest i think the ebola fear is tied to sort of a deep sort of racism and concept about africa and mm-hmm. there's a racist epistemology sort of built into viruses and disease from Africa. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, we've seen some racism tied to coronavirus yeah, as well. Yeah, no, which with China, uh, right? I think people, you know, react to threats in different ways. I mean, we have people who are rising to the challenge, you know, whether they're healthcare workers or people who are at the stop and shop who are going into work, you know, every day, you know, putting themselves on the front lines in another way. I mean, there's a lot of sort of heroic stuff happening. Um, you know, at the same time, there's sort of really... Bizarre things like the the takeover of the of the Michigan State Capitol yesterday. I mean, so there's lots right. of crazy stuff going on. But you know, yeah. it, it is amazing how many people are have been social distancing without any sort of idea that there's a threat they can see in front of them. They just know that it's something they have to do. Yeah, yeah. So to think a little bit more about the question from our listener, I think the listener was concerned about stigmatization and criminalization of uh, COVID-19. And there are a couple of examples that we've seen. It's obviously not, because it's so widespread, it's sort of, (laughs) it's different. But here are a couple of examples of sort of criminalization we've seen. Uh, The Department of Justice has declared that federal anti-terrorism laws can be used to prosecute anyone who threatens or attempts to spread the coronavirus. New Jersey criminal laws have been used to charge a man who allegedly threatened and then coughed on a grocery store clerk. In Pennsylvania, a woman who is not believed to have the coronavirus is facing charges for purposefully coughing on bread. Like, <laughs> what do you... I would like to know more about that one. Yeah, I. true. But what do you think about that? I mean, is there a connection in your mind or no? So, you know, when I think of HIV criminalization, I think of... Michael Johnson and some of the other cases in which people have been put into jail for long sentences for not even for transmitting HIV, but for potentially exposing someone to HIV, even if the person doesn't uh, acquire HIV or they're wearing a condom anyway for not disclosing. And so there's serious sort of um, criminal penalties that have, and there are people in jail around the U.S. because um, 
bogus HIV criminalization statutes. Um, you know, I, the, it's weird the criminalization in, in, in the context of COVID-19 because you have these sort of, you know, the coughing on bread incidents, but you also have the attorney general saying they're willing to go after uh, people who infringe on people's liberties to sort of uh, break social distancing. And so there's, there's a weird right. sort of um, anti-public health criminalization piece into it. There's also, and I don't know if we've seen this yet, but, you know, if we think of people who are homeless, people who are using drugs, who have very little ability to social distance um, and are at the highest risk, they're already sort of marginalized and stigmatized in our community. And you, you can just see, um, you know, somebody who's, who's experiencing homelessness or somebody uh, who uses drugs um, getting caught up in some sort of narrative about spreading it in the community. It's, you know, it's right. just a matter of time until we see it. Well, I mean, in New York here now, we're having sort of this, I was just listening this morning that, you know, they're closing the, the subway overnight now. And as part of that are trying to get homeless people to stop sleeping on the subway. And the tone of it is very like, you know, it's stigmatizing, certainly to homeless people are saying what, you know, they're putting essential workers at risk by, you know, sleeping on the car trains and things like that. Yeah, but it is stigmatizing of homeless people. It just, it's pretty clear that it's not, you know, it only occurred to them after people were sleeping on the subways and, and somebody and somebody brought it up. It, the idea of sort of sanitize, you know, please, it's May 1st. I mean, you know, now Governor Cuomo sort of clues in. It just, it's clearly right. sort of going after homeless individuals in the, in the city who have no other place to go. Right, you know, right. You know, you know, with, in New York City, a gazillion hotel rooms empty, gazillion apartments empty. There's plenty of places to put people in New York, but, you know, Governor Cuomo wants to shoot them off the subways. I mean, it's sort of ludicrous, and it's really about how we think about people who are homeless in the U.S. In the US and in New York. Right, right. Yeah, so it does seem like this, it doesn't seem one-to-one -one at all, but there is some sort of uh, resonance just in the sense that, you know, people who are marginalized before become sort of targets or our fears get kind of tangled up with marginalization during any crisis like this? Oh, I mean, when infectious disease is involved, I mean, you know, we can go back to the plague and start talking about how Jews were targeted for, for stigmatization and, and, and violence. It doesn't surprise me that, you know, for COVID-19, we will find our own scapegoats, we'll find our own people to discriminate against and blame. The infectious disease always, it always happens with infectious disease. Mm -hmm. So on the question of stigma, People have floated this idea of a sort of immunity passport or finding ways to let people who've been uh, who s test positive for antibodies. And when we demonstrate that that indeed means you might be immune, it, people like wearing wristbands or carrying some sort of ID or, you know, um, and, and that might sound, you know, at a basic level, like a decent concept, but then it would also open people up to the discrimination that comes with any a dis a forcible disclosure, especially a public display disclosure of any infectious disease status. Does that strike you in any way? Well, one is we don't know what antibody responses mean in the context of COVID-19 now. Like, are they protective? Are they not? Does everybody have them? Sure. Studies? Yeah. But, but, you know, Donald McNeil was on NPR the other day um, and you know, it's talking about this sort of dystopian era where like there'll be the immune and the non-immune, right? Really this sort of like these two casts of people, you and I could have very similar sort of backgrounds, you know, professional careers, and one of us can be allowed to go back to work and the other wouldn't be allowed to go back to work. 
or not allowed into this restaurant or that restaurant. And so, um, you know, the other thing is like, who's going to be able to, to sort of prove that they are immune. Right. The immunity passport thing sort of, it could go wrong in so many different ways. <laughs> uh, and yeah. it's, 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 it's sort of frightening the opportunities for sort of mischief and discrimination and stigma are pretty right up there. Yeah. No, my thinking on that has definitely evolved similarly. At first I thought that just makes sense. But then when you start thinking about how it would actually be implemented, it seems pretty impossible to do fairly and justly. I, I'm curious overall, do you think HIV in the eighties is instructive for this moment and how, or how not? So look, I mean, the HIV epidemic in the United States was the last sort of big epidemic to sort of confront the United States. Uh, yeah, it was a, a um, concentrated epidemic and struck the LGBT community, people who use drugs, sex workers, communities of color. Um, but, you know, in that sense, you know, watching how the government responds, watching how communities responded and banded together to help each other, um, watching the sort of role of advocacy and community information, you know, the the whole issue of drug pricing and drug development. There's lots of parallels, you know, and you have to go all the way back really to the influenza outbreak of the last century to sort of have anything that's sort of comparable to what we're seeing now. So yeah, I, I do think there, there are parallels and lessons to be learned, um, but COVID-19 is going to present its own peculiar problems in the 21st century that, you know, we haven't really thought of. Right. So it was 1984 and the Secretary of Health and Human Services said that we hope to have a vaccine ready for testing in about two years. That was 36 years ago, and we still don't have uh, an HIV vaccine. We have, uh, you know, Anthony Fauci was one of the heads of the federal response at that time, and he is now one of the heads of the federal response. And we have an administration, a federal administration that is overall ideologically, it reveres the Reagan administration and points to it as this sort of golden era of America. And you lived through that and, and the vaccine was not delivered and, the, and um, there was a lot of distrust and you had to take things into your own hands. And now, though, you seemed hopeful. This um, not so much, to be honest with you guys. When we started seeing the tweets about liberating Virginia and liberating Minnesota uh, from and Donald Trump, from Donald Trump, but also the sort of now over half of the the U.S. states are starting to lift social distancing restrictions, I think um, we jumped the shark. I think we're really in big trouble. Um, there's there's no way that you know even a quarter of those states are ready to do what they need to do to to, to ensure that they don't have sort of a resurgence of virus. And so, you know, and the president is sort of eager to stoke this chaos. I mean, all the demonstrations to liberate Virginia, liberate Michigan or whatever, you know, they're, they're being funneled by groups that are tied to the campaign. And so, I mean, Ronald Reagan might've had sort of a sort of malign neglect and really didn't care about the people who were dying from AIDS. But here there's sort of like a, a glee in sort of perpetuating the chaos um, because it stirs up and, and, and rouses his base. It's not going to end. I don't think it's going to end well. I think with half the states now starting to collapse their sort of basic public health response to the COVID outbreak, I think we're going to see a, a very hot summer over the next few months. Yeah, that is not hope, Jim. Yeah, that's <laughs> not. I'm, I'm not. I. I it, I'm not going to give up. Yeah, we didn't give up then. We're not giving up now. But like, we're we're definitely fighting an uphill battle. What's shocked me the most is that you know, look, I was not a fan of Ronald Reagan and. 
I think he had a lot to do with um, the deaths of a lot of people. But I felt there was like a functioning federal government that could rise to the occasion. It just something broke in our ability to sort of deal with a national crisis, which I don't know, maybe I was living in some fantasy land for the past few years, but I didn't think we were on that sort of um, that sort of precipice. We just sort of have had sort of a wholesale collapse in management and leadership that sort of happened in real time. And, you know, this is why in April I sort of gave up hope because it just seems like I'm like waiting for it all to sort of come together and like the adults to return to the room, but they're not showing up. Yeah, I've had that feeling a lot and it's led me to, you know, feelings of despair. (laughs) You know, I had been spending a lot of time thinking of this as something that was going to be really hard, but that would eventually go away. And I think I'm sort of starting to realize that this is something that we're going to live with for quite some time. And I am curious if you have any thoughts on what the difference is in thinking about something that, you know, we just got to hold our breath until there's a vaccine and thinking about a disease that, you know, we will live with for potentially years, if not longer. Well, you know, my generation, your generation have been lucky. We've sort of avoided AIDS epidemic notwithstanding, we've avoided sort of world historical calamities, right? And, you know, we were talking at the beginning of our conversation about how I used to study English literature and Russian literature, but a lot of it around the years around 1910, 1920. And it's interesting if you read Virginia Woolf or if you read some of the Russians, you know, World War I transformed modern history in a way that sort of nothing was the same afterwards, right? And I think nothing is going to be the same after this. I think it's not going to disappear this summer. Um, I think we're in it for the long haul with resurgences of, of viruses. It may show up in the middle of flu season, which, you know, then all bets are off about what happens. If we don't have a vaccine, um, even if we do, I, I just feel like, you know, there's a pre-COVID time and there's a post-COVID time, just like, you know, World War One reshaped the modern era. I think mm-hmm. this epidemic is going to do the same. I, I'm sorry to ask you to help me personally, but I am curious is there anything to say about how you as an individual processed this life-changing event in the 80s? And do you have any advice for me? <laughs> how do you adjust to a new reality that's going to be with you for a long time? So it happened in the 80s. It also happened when I moved to South Africa. Because mm-hmm. people were dying in droves, right? There was no access to these medicines. And it was terrible, right? But there was work to do. We weren't helpless and powerless. You know, We couldn't shout a cure out of a test tube, but we could do a lot to make people's lives better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it may sound corny, but I found a lot of um, strength and hope and solidarity and the people who I work with. I mean, I said, you know, a lot of these people are back for epidemic number two or three, you know, HIV, Ebola, you know, now COVID. And there's a weird safety in numbers and knowing that you're not going through this alone and that there are people who um, think this whole period in American history is as crazy as we all do and that what's happening, you know, uh, is a scandal that should have never sort of been allowed to happen in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't change the sort of catastrophic pain and suffering that many people are going to experience. We're probably going to experience ourselves and in our own social circles over the next couple of years, but you're not alone. You're not powerless. And every once in a while you get lucky. 1995, I was like, this is going to be with us forever. We're all going to die. And I was doom and gloom. A year later, drugs came on the market for HIV that, you know, I'm taking today that, you know, kept me alive for the past, you know, 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. So things can change in an instant in the bad way. And it 
continue. You just have to hold out, right? You got to just make the next year. And I've lost lots of friends in the HIV epidemic, both in the US and in South Africa, and doubtlessly will lose people to COVID, but you know, you keep going and um, find people who are willing to sort of hunker down and, and fight with you and, and speak up because um, I don't know, it's, it's a comradeship. I don't know how to describe it. It's just a weird feeling like we're in this together, we're gonna fight and we're not gonna give up. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. I think of you as a sort of exemplary person who's taken that experience in uh, tragedy and loss and turned it into a mission that has uh, and done a lot of good for the world and used it to fuel progress and change. Thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, I'm glad to anytime. Yeah. Thanks so much, Greg. All right. Take care. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That was beautiful. This show was produced today by Kevin Townsend with help from Anna Waters and Jacqueline Landry. Write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com and we may be able to answer your question like we did today. Uh, And if you like the show, write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people find the show. You okay, Jim? Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking about how to... I I think a lot of people want to do that kind of meaningful work. It's just a question of exactly what it looks like, but... Well, that's something we can follow up on, right? Ugh, you're going to make me follow up. I have to nap. (laughs) Talk to you Monday. Later. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's beyond zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our beyond zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero.